Hi, my name is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm so excited because on Monday, September 3rd, we're having our first Courageous Conversations event. Now, those who have been rocking with us for a while know that we've done Courageous Conversations in the past, but it's been via Google Hangouts where we take a scholar or pastor trained in a more conservative evangelical space and a scholar and pastor trained in a more mainline progressive space. And I'm so excited because we're moving from these Google Hangouts to an actual event that's going to be phenomenal. Phenomenal. We have 24 scholars and pastors lined up to talk about things like sexuality, the authority of scripture, justice, Paul versus Jesus. It's going to be amazing. Some of the people that we have are Dr. Judy Finchers, Williams, Dr. Jarvis Williams, Dr. Bruce Fields, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Delman Coates, Dr. Brianna Parker, Dr. Teresa Fry Brown. I mean, it is going to be amazing. Dr. Yolanda Pierce, you don't want to miss this event. So I want you to go on Jew3project.com and register. Meet us in Chicago, Illinois on Monday, September 3rd. It's going to be a phenomenal experience. I don't think anything like this has ever been done. So join us as we make history. Now let's get to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Andrew Wilkes, soon to be a PhD, right, Andrew? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Jew 3, almost dissertation. Excited about it. Yeah, yeah. Getting that um getting that doctor. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be on that level one day. I haven't haven't gotten in it yet. <laughs> but thank you for uh joining us again. You did um a courageous conversations uh on social justice back with Akimini. Uh was that last year? Um I think so, man. Time is it's moving. Yeah. Yeah, time is moving at the speed of light. It's crazy. Um, so I'm excited to have you back on the um again. And now you are author. I'm so excited for you um, and the work you're doing. And the book is Freedom um, Notes. And uh, I know you have a copy. (laughs) Um, So before we get into that, for those who didn't hear you on um, the Courageous Conversation episode with Akimini, just give them just a little bit of background. Yeah, so I'm originally from Atlanta, um, ordained minister. have spent most of my uh, adult life and career um, working at the intersection of congregational ministry, community development, economic justice, uh, and pulled together freedom notes over the course of uh, three years, really to help start what I think is an urgently needed conversation around three areas, uh, faith, uh, justice, Uh, and democracy. Uh, These are three intersecting things that are always um, ever before us. And so I'm really glad to be with you talking about it. Awesome. Awesome. So what made you want to, I know this is your passion. Uh, What what made you say this needs to come out now? What was the urgency behind this message now? Great question. well, you know, I, I think there's a certain sense in which for, for Christians, there's always a, a nearness and nowness 
of questions around freedom. You know, the first words we hear from Jesus are uh, not only repent, but the, the kingdom of God is, is at hand. And so there's a kind of an urgency uh, for freedom. Um, but there, there's perhaps uh, a heightened sense maybe of that urgency in terms of um, what some call the black freedom struggle being at a particularly unique point where you have folks talking about getting free, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, whether you see folks in um, uh, black evangelical spaces, whether it's uh, The Witness, whether it's Truth Table, Jude 3, um, you see folks like, um, goodness gracious, Dream Defenders. I mean, we, we could go on and on and on. So a, a part of what I wanted to do is to try to narrate through my own journey of getting free uh, and also to bring the resources of uh, what I think is a distinctive black social gospel tradition, which is different from um, a more kind of white social gospel tradition uh, to this conversation. Mm -hmm. What was, you mentioned your own journey of freedom. What was that like? What was your own, can you share with our audience your own journey to freedom? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So I'm, I'm the son of uh, black physicians in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta being the only city where there has been a successive uh, Black-led uh, mayoralty for the past five generations, starting in the 70s with Maynard Jackson. Uh, so I, I grew up in the kind of uh, Jack and Jill, uh, bougie kind of context. And while I appreciate you know, the, the educational and the kind of, uh, in some ways, gilded upbringing that I had, um, over time, as I began to accept my call to ministry, uh, and because of the unique commitments, I think, to um, uh, public service that my, my parents uh, instilled in me, I, I came to see that um, what freedom means for me is not uh, about a kind of talented 10th notion. It's not about a, a kind of elitism, but it's about a kind of equalizing call to discipleship, to democracy um, in a civic sense and to making sure that the work of liberation that I think the spirit calls us to is something for me that uh, often takes place within writing. Uh, and so I see writing as a critical area of ministry. That's not just you know, about people who see themselves as authors, uh, but um, getting free for me has been through journals, through writing sermons, through Bible study lessons, uh, and also through essays and articles um, and, and the book um, Freedom Notes as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of wrote my way to, to freedom, notes of freedom along the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are some of those notes um, that you wrote um, for yourself? Yeah, this, uh, so, you know, I, I, I talk about a number of things. Uh, there, there's there's a, um, a piece in there about thinking through Ferguson as, as Christological response. And so uh, many of us are familiar with feelings of grief and anguish when we see um, you know, yet another unarmed um, Black person, be they uh, male or female, uh, right, killed by disproportionate deadly force due to police or community folks. Um, and so in that moment, um, I was grappling with the question I think many believers grapple with, which is what does it mean to think of Christ in the context of what's happening uh, in Ferguson? And in those kind of settings, um, a privatized, hyper-individualistic sense of God's providence and direction, you know, it's just woefully insufficient to talk about 
uh, how God moves through the world and how grace and God's justice takes place. And so in that piece in the book, I try to work through both celebrating what's happening uh, in Ferguson. There were a number of churches, as well as a number of folks in the community, uh, Reverend Tracy Blackman, Reverend Star Wilson, as well as folks uh, just organizing. And so thinking through what happens locally, as well as just the church writ large, how we can move towards uh, justice and freedom. So that's an example of one of the pieces that uh, is there. Yeah, and I think that's so powerful. I remember us being at um, Southern in Baton Rouge doing our HBCU tour. Mm-hmm. And during the uh, Q&A, a Hebrew Israelite came up and he was, um, one was really uh, irate and the other one was kind of calm. And mm-hmm. he was, he got to the, um, he was just like, he basically was a crying out for like, does God see us as black people? And his mm-hmm. explanation was, you know, them believing we are the tribe of Judah, lost tribe of Judah, that we had to be cursed. And that mm-hmm. was his resolve for him understanding the black experience. Um, and so I think it's important, like you're saying, to highlight, you know, that intersection is for the black freedom struggle and where Christ fits in. Because we don't want people to think, oh, it's because black people are cursed that we're experiencing this. Um, do, you see that, do you see that in New York, people people coming to conclusions of being cursed as a reason why the black struggle um, and trying to understand freedom and experience? Well, you know, if New York has a has a long tradition of both um, anti-blackness on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, black arts movements, um, black uh, faith communities, Christian communities in particular, uh, doing uh, works of freedom. And so, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey and his uh, movements, uh, the UNIA in Harlem whether we're talking about, you know, Malcolm or Baldwin or Gwendolyn Brooks, there are a number of folks you can point to historically. In a more contemporary sense, um, there are conversations around gentrification, around um, uh, closing Rikers Island and what mass incarceration looks like in the city as well as the state context around the gap between um, an insufficient um, minimum wage, even when it scales up to $15 an hour, and in places like New York City, where buying a two-bedroom apartment is still, for many people, out of reach, even with $15 an hour. And so when you think about that, uh, it's a tempting conclusion to suggest, you know, where's God in the midst of all of this? Uh, and, and, and a part of what I think um, I, I try to argue in, in the book is that um, God... Um, dignifies humanity by assigning a portion of agency of um, co-laboring with God within history to move towards freedom, uh, which doesn't mean that we are uh, necessarily the the, the senior partner, right? I think God preserves uh, and reserves a a kind of uh, sense of of kind of orchestrating history towards freedom. Uh, but it does mean uh, that we have a critical, crucial role to, to play in New York City and in other urban, rural, and ex- exurban areas. And so I think a part of what I, I really want uh, to encourage folks to do is to think through how our gifts, our aptitudes, our passions in concert with others uh, can create a symphony of freedom because freedom is never a solo uh, effort. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think that's important. And I, I appreciate you talking about those things that are taking place, um, especially in New York City and all across the nation, especially with gentrification. How do you think the church can help fight gentrification in our in our cities? You know, that's, that's a, a really great uh, question. Um, and I think it's important for the church to uh, not only be engaged in the kind of prophetic dimensions of freedom where we speak truth to power and say, you know, far too many people are homeless, can't afford an apartment or get home ownership opportunities. That's an important part of the work. But there's also um, a kind of royal dimension of, of, of freedom. And by royal, I mean attending to the administrative dimensions of freedom and justice. And so when the church uh, is advocating for community land trusts, advocating for things like public banking. Uh, these are structural policy responses that are pushing long-term housing affordability that suggest that private property does not have to always and everywhere be the kind of default option uh, because this is after all uh, God's creation. Uh, and capitalism is uh, a human created institution. It's, it's not uh, something that is inherently sacred, nor is any uh, social political system for that matter. Let me let me hasten to, to add. Uh, so once we begin from that premise, um, we can begin to advocate for policies that are independent of both Republican and Democratic parties and are in the best interests of our parishioners, of the congregants we serve, and of the people to whom we're inviting to discipleship. Um, one way that I'll talk about it is, is this way, that there's a huge prayer disparity in the church and the prayers that uh, black folks and latinx folks pray in the altars of churches is categorically different than the prayers that people pray in the altars of white churches and this prayer disparity is preventable and a part of the work of freedom is closing this ugly uh, preventable prayer gap and a part of the way that we do that is through having a structural concern for freedom uh, that is proactive on policy and not just uh, following whatever the convention or party platform is of any given uh, institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's important because I was talking to somebody um, in the major uh, metro city um, and he was talking about the fact that some white evangelical institutions were kind of aiding in gentrification and the displacement of, mm -hmm. of black and brown people. Um, in the name of the kingdom. Um, so it's another aspect of colonization mm -hmm. um, that is um, problematic and evil. Um, so- Call it by its name. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's important that we highlight that um, in the conversation because, you know, obviously personal piety, if that's the only part of the gospel that you you uh, cling to, then you don't feel the need to dismantle the social structures that are that are there. So, uh, is that something else that your your book was is is seeking to highlight as well? Absolutely. I, I think on the the question of, of personal piety, I, I think it's a, an important question to lift up. I have uh, a piece in which I kind of talk about the Lord's Prayer as uh, a resource for lament for resilience in the wake of uh, natural disasters, but also in some ways, community disasters. Uh, and it's important for us to have 
multiple directions in which we move the inheritance of faith. Uh, there's personal piety, there's liturgy for Sunday, there's organizing on Monday and Wednesday, there's uh, op-ed writing and giving testimony and community development. There's, there's multiple directions in which we can go with this thing. And so part of what freedom means is breaking out of conventional categories about how we see problems and how we see solutions. Because if we have cookie cutter approaches to either problems or solutions, we won't be able to have a contextual incarnational sense of what does freedom look like for us right here, right now. You know, Paul's letters are occasional. Paul is writing to uh, Philippi. He's writing to, you know, Ephesus to deal with specific issues happening then and now. And so a part of what Freedom Notes and what I try to argue in the book is that we need to leverage the inheritance of our people and of Christianity uh, in particular in many ways to address the circumstances before us. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. And I love that you highlighted the fact that it can look different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just, you know, because some people say, well, I'm not good with uh, marching or that they don't think that's their thing, but there's something else they can do. It doesn't have to look like it looked um, in a particular time uh, for us. And I think that changing um, method um, to keep the same message, but to tweak the method is important across, especially in a social media age where you see that, you know, you, the power of hashtags and the power of black Twitter, it, uh, marching can look like um, a Twitter movement um, in some instances. So it looks different. Not saying that marching is ineffective because that is a, a means that we use that has been very helpful that we still use today that we need to do. But everybody won't march. Everybody won't be on social media. Everybody won't write an op-ed, but we can all do something. Absolutely. And, and I think the heart of the idea of, of marching is is about um, nonviolent uh, direct action, and whether that looks like what um, Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris are doing the Poor People's Movement, uh, whether it looks like, uh, as you mentioned, marching, writing op-eds, whether it looks like someone who is in business and they're wondering what does it mean to incorporate as an LL. Um, uh, as a B corporation, as an LC3, as uh, an enterprise that's not about profit motives, but is about uh, social and ecological motives as metrics for what effective delivery of programming and interface with the community looks like. There's ways that we can think of, you know, stuff that we don't often talking a public interest attorney, being an accountant, um, culinary gifts. Uh, that can be leveraged in the work of freedom. And it's really about a doctrine of vocation and gifts that is much more expansive than just over-valorizing what a preacher does in the streets or over-valorizing what a politician or a judge does. All of those three positions are important, but there's a much wider tableau that we have as a priesthood of believers and as folks who um, God is inviting, you know, to, to do this freedom work. Yeah. And I love that you included our, our work because I think, you know, our, in our everyday lives, sometimes we detach what it means to fight for freedom in our jobs. So if we're an accountant, we work, but we don't necessarily attach that to our what we can be doing as far as freedom um, in the larger in the larger space. And I think that's important, especially when dealing with what the with, books got to get balanced. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, like what you were saying, your background and myself, both of us growing up in a um, black uh, middle class space. So you have a little bit more privilege in that sense, mm-hmm. um, especially you growing up in the black. Uh, you said Jack and Jill in Atlanta. It's a, mm-hmm. a little bit more uh, a bougie than Jacksonville. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but. Um, it's just that Jacksonville is kind of country. So, um, That's so right. uh, I, I, I appreciate it all. <laughs> but uh, so in that sense, we have more privilege. I remember Marvin McNichols book. I'm, I'm I think you're probably familiar with two preachings to the black middle class. How mm-hmm. do we leverage that um, our privilege in black spaces to advocate for our own people? I think is important as well. Um, what what uh, word will you speak to those who are in the black middle class, the uh, the black and boozy, uh the folks? Mm-hmm. How how are we uh, leveraging our sense, our experiences to help uh, our 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 own people? Mm. Um, I think it's important to recognize that. Um, and what I, I try to uh, keep in mind is that um, I don't want to speak on someone's behalf. Um, I want to speak alongside with folks who, you know, are lifting up their own voices for, for freedom. And, you know, my presumption is that it takes a, a chorus to, to get free and, and to sing um, the songs of, of liberty and, and liberation that um, our four mothers and four fathers bequeath to us. Uh, and I think that's important because a lot of times kind of growing up in black and middle class spaces, there's the idea that you kind of superintend as a kind of race woman or a race man, and you are kind of mentoring the underprivileged is sometimes the language that's used, or that you are responsible for acculturating people into black respectability, which often is acculturation into a kind of racial capitalism and white supremacy, which, which strips away their blackness. And as it relates to to, to Christ, uh, it often kind of um, removes the, the the hue of, of Christ, uh, such that one just kind of has a disincarnate view of Christ that is utterly historically improbable uh, in his position as a Palestinian Jew in the first century. And so a, a part of what I would say to folks who are, are Black and middle class is to always be engaged in that difficult work of self-examination and repentance to think a chorus of freedom, how we can work together instead of uh, us on someone's behalf. Uh, And then I think it's important to center a vision of freedom that is about liberation, not only for middle-class folks, but also for for working-class folks. I think it's important to celebrate um, labor in all of its forms and shapes uh, and to make sure that all work is is decent. And so for folks who are doing um, home healthcare work, janitorial services, uh, construction work, it ought not be the case that there are incidents of workplace accidents. So we say you are in this context because you don't have an education or because you are insufficiently attentive to X or Y variable. I think God is interested in, in, in freedom across the, the board. Um, so those would be just kind of a, a few words of, of advice. And a part of, um, I think, a relevant piece that uh, I think addresses that a bit. Um, I talk some about what um, Freedom Notes kind of covers a span of the last um, 
uh, kind of eight to 10 years and tries to really kind of set it in, in, in a particular moment when Obama was president, when we're dealing with recovery from the Great Recession, which in our communities, um, we still haven't fully recovered uh, because homes were foreclosed on substantially and most of black wealth is actually rooted in homes. And so we're talking about black unemployment still being depression level in, in some cases, not having wealth to fall back on when you're sick or when people transition into older age. And so we're in a context where it's easy for black middle-class folks to blame black working class folks, instead of uh, placing the blame on, on the system where it lies and claiming our power and agency wherever we are socioeconomically to move towards freedom, to claim that which God has given us to make liberation a, a, a reality. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to um, our um, 45 is in office and he often highlights the fact that black unemployment um, is at the lowest it's ever been. Um, while that may be true, that number isn't necessarily um, reflective of our community and the problems still within our community. Can you just give a kind of overview of where Black America is um, um, economically? So I, I, I can give a, a, a sketch. Uh, okay. I, I don't presume to be able to, to give uh, no, a I know, I'm not. <laughs> I uh, asked a big question. My, 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 my training is in, is in political science, uh, though I dabble in economics a bit. Uh, I, I think it's important statistically, though, to, to separate um, black unemployment in the aggregate from what black unemployment looks like in specific communities among particular age groups. Uh, so black uh, youth between the ages of 16 and 24 are still in particularly dire straits uh, in terms of economic opportunities in many uh, uh, suburban and metro areas. I think that's important to know. And when we think of uh, particular cities like uh, Newark, Lack of Flint, Lack of Detroit, in some parts of my own hometown in Atlanta, uh, folks are still dealing with a pretty substantial gap between uh, opportunity and what their actual employment conditions are. And so it's important not to let, it's kind of like the weather. You can't talk about the weather in general, um, the forecast in a city and have that speak to a particular neighborhood or what a climate looks like in someone's home. You have to kind of separate them. Um, and so in that sense, I think there's still a need to make sure that um, one, we're attentive to conditions of employment not being uh, solid in many communities. Uh, I spoke a bit earlier about uh, Black wealth taking a substantial hit. Uh, I think a part of what I would just say on, on that front is I think it's important to think of what does it mean to have a frame of, of commonwealth and not just individual wealth creation. Uh, so when we talk about something like community land trust, that begins to be a housing solution that pushes back against displacement residentially, uh, that pushes back lots turned towards office towers as opposed to how can we have um, housing solutions that make sense for us. Um, when we think about things like credit unions and I mentioned public banks, uh, this gives opportunities for small businesses, for um, for homes, for nonprofit institutions, uh, and just a different way of imagining what our, our communities can can look like. And so, um, and then of course, uh, educationally, um, uh, black young adults um, and other demographics, but particularly young adults, are still saddled with you know tons of student debt. And so we're we're dealing with um, incredible obstacles on, on that front, and making sure that there's a a clear 
uh, policy preference for, uh, I think, tuition free, not only college, but community college options, which are accessible and available, uh, it, it's critical as well. Yeah, I think those are very, very important. And I love how you highlighted the student loan debt because people will say, well, this generation is more educated, but this generation is <laughs> burdened by the debt of that. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we, need, we need to run through uh, the streets of Sally Mae and so forth, crying Jubilee, Jubilee, <laughs> the years at hand. <laughs> I know, right? I wish that um, those debt cancellation prophecies work because that would, would be really helpful now. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, but there are examples, and I, I think in terms of generating hope, because hope is a precondition of moving towards freedom. Um, For-profit institutions like Corinthian College um, have been held accountable under the uh, Department of Education, uh, the previous administration. Um, and even though the terms of restitution and paying back what was uh, lost is kind of being slow walked by 45's um, DOE, um, it's important to note that um, in principle, um, there has been um, policy and to some degree legal agreement that folks have been defrauded, which creates a government application uh, to make it right. Um, so to some extent, um, the, the indebtedness created by um, private institutions at, in higher ed is being rolled back a bit. So, so, so there are glimmers of hope and freedom among us, and we celebrate them. <laughs> yes. Um, what other things would you like to highlight about your book that we haven't already discussed? That's a great question. Um, I, I, I'd like to highlight that, um, you know, I, I think it's important to think on a couple of wavelengths at the same time. In one sense, I think it's important to note that um, we are always making a deliberate choice when we're reading scripture. Uh, that there's a book, um, there's a, a piece in here that I have called uh, Sexy Spectacles. Uh, and I try to um, encourage um, some of my um, black male colleagues in ministry to always opt for uh, the freeing and liberating interpretation. Uh, because there's times when if one is reading a story, if one is reading a parable, even in some cases an epistle, uh, one can move towards a constrictive or, or liberating interpretation. And, and it depends on um, how one brings other texts into play, one's theological framework. Uh, and I think it's important to recognize that even in something as straightforward and everyday as reading our Bibles, we can participate in loving the Lord with all our mind and helping to, to push toward freedom. So that would be one thing that I would say uh, and spend a good deal of time talking about it. Uh, the second thing which I would say is that um, uh, the book, will, uh, I'm doing some pre-release events. Um, uh, started in Chicago and will be in Atlanta um, this Saturday, uh, July 14th, and will be in, in seven or eight other cities over the next few months. Uh, but but one message which I'm trying to share everywhere is that um, this conversation includes, but of course transcends uh, this particular book. Um, the, the goal is to make sure that we're um, writing our own notes of freedom and are being attentive to uh, the cries and conditions of unfreedom in our communities and throughout creation and are ever ready to be mobilized into God's um, expansive work of freedom and creation. Awesome. Well, how can people get your book and how can get they stay connected with you via social media? 
so I'll take the latter and then go backwards. Uh, so on uh, Twitter and Instagram and so forth, uh, uh, Andrew J. Wilkes, W-I-L-K-E-S. Uh, the book, um, again, will be available everywhere uh, in the fall uh, online. Uh, but I do have uh, some pre-release copies from the publisher. And um, as I noted, I'm doing some events um, over the next few months uh, in Philly, in uh, Boston, um, going back to my alma mater, Hampton, Virginia, uh, in September, I believe. Uh, so I'll make sure to share all of those on social media. So so, so follow me. Let's, let's talk freedom and, uh, and continue this uh, critical work together. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. And um, I am excited for you about all the great things you have coming up uh, with your uh, your events and your books. So God bless you. God bless you. Always a pleasure to be on the Jew 3 Project. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.